Mac Power Users, Episode 276, Workflows with Matt Alexander. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hey, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm hanging in there. We're the show must go on, right? Yeah, your Mac is sick. I know. We dodged hurricanes, and I've, I've got no computer today. But we're, we're making it work because we've got a very special guest for this episode. One that's been on our our list for a while, and you finally managed to to track down at WWDC and and wrangle onto our show. Uh, and that is Matt Alexander. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I actually did really hunt Matt down at WWDC this year. <laughs> we were, uh, I think we were in the Slack channel together and you said, oh, I'm having coffee over at such and such. And it was like four blocks away. I almost said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find this guy. <laughs> so uh, yet, yet another incident of David stalking people at Apple conferences. You didn't, Matt didn't have a choice, right? I just kind of came in and sat next to you and what were you going to do? Right. Well, it works out pretty well. We've been intending to chat at some point yeah. and, uh, you sort of popped in and we ended up having a good little impromptu chat and then you went off on your way, as did I. Um, but it worked out quite well. It was probably the most pleasant form of stalking I've well, ever that's, had. I, I try to be uh, bring quality stalking to everything I do. Um, the, uh, mm. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show, Matt, is because you are a unique breed. Um, uh, for those that don't know, Matt is super nerd. I mean, Matt does. In fact, you do the was it the Bonanza podcast on Relay, and you you. you well, that's that's the most important thing that but, he does. I yeah. mean, forget about all this other stuff. But you know, you, you're like one of us. You're part of the family. You're a geek. You you like to do things and make your computer dance for you and do all this stuff. But you're also the CEO of a pretty you know major company, and you guys have a lot of stuff going on. We're going to talk about that more in the show. And I thought, you know, there aren't too many CEO nerds out there. I mean, for some reason, I don't know why. It's it's just unusual to see somebody running a big, large business who's also really geeky. And in my experience, a lot of times the guys who run these companies don't really have a clue about much of this stuff. And um, and but you but you do. And I think that was really neat because I wanted to talk about how did you you know build these companies with you know, using all these tools. And now that you're, you're running these companies, how do you use the tools? Where do they get in the way? Where do they help? So we, we have a lot to talk to you about today, Matt. Sure. I'm ready. I think. I, but, I, I always thought about like the president, you know, the president problem. Like if you were the president, would you be running scripts to manage emails? No, you just wouldn't answer most of your email. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's just, you get to a certain level where some of the stuff that may follow by the wayside, or maybe it doesn't. But anyway, so that's why we're here today. We want to talk about this stuff. Um, but in addition to your podcast, um, you've got several, like I was saying, successful businesses. One is need, um, and need is found at neededition.com. And just tell everybody a little bit about that so they kind of get an idea of what you're doing. Uh, yeah, so Need launched in November 2013. So it's just over a year and a half old, almost two years, um, which is actually kind of crazy to think about. Um, Need is sort of a cross between a men's magazine and a retailer. So every month we put together uh, 10 to 15 products, sometimes up to 20, all of which are exclusive to us um, from brands all around the world. Um, frequently exclusive, um, 
all such and such in that sort of regard. Um, and then we put them out exclusively through our site for about a month. Um, unlike the vast majority of sites in that space, we don't do flash sales. We don't do deep discounts. We just pre- present products that we believe is really great. That has a really great story. And, uh, and we see what we can do with it. And so that's been going for about a year and a half. It has just under half a million members active right now. Um, we've sold out of every collection since we launched and, uh, we're sort of working on what that shakes out to be in the next few months right now. Yeah, and so like this isn't just clothing, it's also like there's a, a MacBook case and there's a notebook and there's sunglasses and it's just a you know, selected group of fine products. But that's not the only thing you guys are doing over there. You've got some other brands as well. Uh yeah, so we just in February this year uh launched a company called Foremost. It was a byproduct of an acquisition offer we had last year. Uh, that I renegotiated into launching a new brand. Um, we'd had a lot of demand from people that wanted the same sort of narrative and storytelling that we have at Need, um, but didn't want to sort of have the price point that we have. So like the average order on Need is somewhere around 175 bucks. Um, and so we wanted to sort of try to bring that exclusivity and narrative to... Um, you know, a younger market potentially, or people that just don't want to spend that much on clothing and lifestyle products and things like that. So I had this sort of crazy idea to build an American made affordable brand. And I had no idea if it was doable. Uh, turns out it is. Um, and we built foremost. So it's small batch American made clothing released every month or so alongside, um, a series of short films and interviews. Um, so all the products are priced on average under 50 bucks for men and women, all made in the U.S., all with mostly organic fabrics. Um, and yeah, so that one's just been going since February, but that one already has about 100,000 members growing faster than need was at this stage, um, getting a lot of traction, a lot of interest. That one's been a lot of fun. Um, and and, that, and that's yeah. found at foremostedition.com. Yeah. 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 So- and we'll, we'll have links to all of these in the show notes. Matt, can you can you take us back a little bit and and tell us how does how do you get started with this? I mean, how does how does a guy who was you know raised in England and decides to you know I, I think your your degree is in English literature and then computer science? How did you end up just a relatively few years later end up being CEO of a couple of you know growing and and booming companies? I mean, did you just wake up and say, I've, I've got this idea for a company and it just take off from there. Can, can you give us a little idea of, of how this grew? Yeah. So I graduated in 2010 uh, with a degree in literature, as you say, um, I actually had a pre-law sort of skew to everything. So going in kind of your direction. Um, and it was 2010, the economy was messy. I was planning to go to law school in England and, um, in England, you have to get the job at the law firm before you start law school for it to be a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, the vast majority of these firms were down to... That's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, well, because it's a much shorter program. It's like two years, and most of the firms pay your way through. And so you get the internship, they pay your way through, you end up in a short-term scheme with them, you try out a lot of different areas in the company, and then hopefully you land in a certain division of the firm. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a smart process, but the result was that in 2010, um, some of them were down to like three-day work weeks, and they just weren't hiring many young people or paying their way through university or anything like that. Um, so I deferred my offers. I had one or two master's offers, deferred those. Um, and I ended up with a job uh, where I had an internship that evolved very quickly into a job at Southwest Airlines, um, sort of a pseudo paralegal type role, um, which was great. 
Um, but my problem there was that I was very aware, almost abundantly so, of the ceiling above me. Um, you sort of go in and it's built to have a great culture, but the byproduct of that is that it's just a huge amount of different corporate little fiefdoms where everyone has their own little sort of bureaucracy and everything. And I just really struggled with it. So I decided to go off um, and try and do my own thing. And I was out on a walk with my girlfriend, now fiancé. Um, it must have been in 2000. 12 no no it would have been it would have been 2011 uh around the sort of summer and i um late summer about this time and i i was out for a walk and i said you know i used to run a website when i was young i had a little sort of nerdy website for developing homebrew apps and things like that for video games consoles i wrote it under a pseudonym and it ended up with one and a half million readers when i was 11 um and uh, yeah. I decided I would try to resurrect that sort of brand and build my own little blog and try to justify myself um, in the business world that I would take this talent I had for writing and everything, this degree I had, and prove that its value extended beyond just being able to critically analyze Macbeth. Um, and, uh, and so I said to her, I was like, you know, I'm going to launch a website and then I'm going to get the credibility from that to build my own company eventually sort of thing. And I assumed it would take a few years and it ended up taking a few months. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started, I started a website. Um, and then, um, a guy that a lot of people are familiar with listening to this, uh, Jim Dowrymple, um, he gave me a huge amount of advice and sort of input early on and had me start writing part-time for his site, the loop. Um, okay. Yeah, so I started pitching in here and there. That got me a lot of profile a lot faster than I would have otherwise. Um, and then Mike Hurley and I became friends and launched a podcast eventually called Bionic, um, which would then make the transition over to 5x5. I started going out to Macworlds and WWDC and all that, and I quickly got to know a lot of people, and we all sort of got on, and I would send a lot of really embarrassing emails to a lot of really prominent people in that sort of indie Apple sort of related design space. Um, and, uh, just sort of talking to them about what they do, um, which is something I still do today with different people in different industries. And, um, and I just, I ended up launching my first company, which was kind of quiet. I sort of built my own little consultancy firm where I worked with the likes of Uber, helping them launch in, uh, Dallas where I live, um, did some stuff for American Express in New Jersey and New York, putting on a conference for all their top executives, did some stuff from the Ministry of Defense and Ernst & Young, ended up selling off that company to a smaller company in England, the one of the client list. And I had a job offer to become basically a VC um, in London on behalf of a German venture fund. And at the same time, I also had job offers with a few other startups. And one of them was in the fashion space. And uh, it sort of set me on the slippery slope where I found an industry that I really found fascinating. I found an industry that I really cared about. I had some credibility and I sort of found this nexus point where um, I had a feeling that there was a way I could do something a little bit different, a little bit better here and there. Um, and I ended up hatching this idea that would become need. And so we went from idea to incorporated and funded within 30 days or so, uh, which was wild. Yeah, you had sent me an email and I was going to make a contribution to your tech site. 
and I am, um, and I was very slow in getting back with you. I, I agreed to do it, but then eventually I got around to doing it and the, the site wasn't really even running anymore because you were so busy with this other stuff. I mean, you right. really, you really made this happen fast. Um, so, so let's wind back a little bit then. Tell us a little bit about Matt the nerd. I mean, you, you know, you, uh, you are actually a pretty geeky guy. Oh, absolutely. I've always been very closeted about it, though. I've always kept it very close to the chest. Yeah, I did the same thing for a while when I was in, at the firm. You know, yeah, I think the secret might be out. Yeah, I don't care anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, when I was when I was a kid, I always you know I read comic books and I loved to do you know lots of different nerdy things. I would I always had this fascination with taking apart everything that my parents bought. So you know they get a new TV and I would take apart the remote, uh, which proved troublesome. Um, and I ended up on this track where I was doing all this different sort of stuff in my spare time when I was young. So I ran this website, I had one and a half million readers and I never told a single person about it except maybe my best friend. Um, my parents didn't know, no one really knew. I had it under a pseudonym. I, I, I forged PayPal credentials. I was getting, I was getting sponsorship money every month. Um, no one knew. And your, parents, and then I started, your parents had no idea. No, I, I, I told, I remember my dad found out we were on holiday and I said, you know, I think... I'd like to start buying product to sell on the site, um, like different pieces of hardware and things um, uh, to enable all these different loopholes. And he was like, wait, what's the product and for what website? And I said, oh, you know, it doesn't yeah. really matter. And we sort of moved on and that was about it. And um, I was, it was all very sort of close to the chest. You know, meanwhile, I was also, you know, skateboarding and BMXing all the time. And I had like minor sponsorships for all that sort of stuff. Um, which was a complete odds with who I was privately and, you know, where I was taking apart computers and I was building them and buying parts and selling them on eBay. Um, when the Nintendo DS came out, um, it was coming out around Christmas in the UK and I came out with, um, a list of all the places that you could still pre-order it from and get it guaranteed by Christmas and sold it for, you know, under one pound, uh, you know, $2 or whatever it was at the time try and help people out you know a little sort of entrepreneurial experiment i remember it made like a few thousand pounds and uh and i was stunned by it and my whole family was like what on earth have you been doing in your spare time um and you know it's always always been like that i, I read sort of graphic novels all the way through university and everything and it wasn't i'd never really self-identified as a geek or as a entrepreneur or as any of these things that i self-identify as now until i was sort of about 25 and i was like oh man i 100 percent realized that through all of this i've been super nerdy and i'm i was invariably gonna end up building my own thing i was gonna be complete poison to a corporate atmosphere um so i've only recently sort of come to fess up to it well it's, you know when i was a kid we played um dungeons and dragons but you know now you hear about that and like people talk about it lovingly because I don't think kids play that stuff like the dice and book games anymore because everything is on a computer. But, but at the time, even the people that I was playing with, we would never talk about it at school. It, it would be like, you know, it's like some verb, you know, verboten, you know, some forbidden thing we were doing on the side that you would never talk about it anywhere except around each other because you didn't want anybody to know that you'd play those games because you'd get beat up. I mean, it wasn't, there was nothing cool about it back then. So I imagine it was kind of that way for you too. But you were also an entrepreneur just listening to you. Um, so, so what kind of Apple technology are you driving? Uh, like today, um, yeah. I have the new MacBook. Um, I have the new oh, Mac like out. 
I love it so much. It's probably my favorite Mac I've ever had. You, you, do you like yours? Yeah, but that's that's probably not your only Mac, though. Everybody who loves the new MacBook has another Mac. It's a great second Mac. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, well, I just found myself, I've been traveling two weeks a month, um, or thereabouts, and so I have a 15-inch Max Out Pro from, like, 2014, um, which I love to death, but it's just massive. Um, and so whenever I'm traveling now, I just throw the little Mac in it. I've actually set it up so... Um, I have my little sort of office set up um, at home, and then I have my little uh, MacBook always on the kitchen island. Um, and so when I wake up in the morning and I'm making coffee or whatever, I will sit and work there right next to the Sonos and sort of, you know, have this nice little morning ritual with that. And then my Big Mac usually lives um, at the office during the week, um, so I don't yeah. have to carry it back and forth all the time. I recently guessed it on Connected, and um, I took Federico's place for a day. So just imagine someone not as handsome as Federico and without <laughs> the cool, sexy accent, and that was me. But <laughs> I was telling them the the barrier to carrying that MacBook with you somewhere else is almost zero. I mean, with, with a 15-inch MacBook Pro, there are th- places you will go that you would like to have a computer that you will just not bring it because of the weight. Um, and that almost doesn't exist for that MacBook. It's just so light. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I, I've I've become absolutely addicted to it, um, mostly because I'm one of those people, which I know is super controversial, but I just can't get anything meaningful done on an iPad. Um, it's it's almost ex- exclusively used for like a bedtime sort of device or a sofa. Um, I can do quite a bit on my phone, but I I just I don't do well with doing email on anything except my Mac. And email is like ninety nine percent of what I do for a living now. And uh, and so I I don't know I, when I heard the rumors about the new MacBook, you know, late last year, I guess. I just remember seeing it, and everyone was like, "That sounds ridiculous. It sounds so pointless." And I just remember sitting there going, "That sounds amazing. I absolutely need that." Um, well, like. Like, for example, with my day job, I use mail tags aggressively. That's one of the ways I kind of keep track of email coming in on different client matters. And that's just not an option with, with, the, with the iPad. Right. So, you know, and like all the automation stuff I do, most of it is not an option. So it's, there, there's definitely a place for it there. Um, I don't want to spend the whole show talking about it because everybody's probably tired of hearing about it. But I, I would like you to weigh in on the keyboard thing. Where, where do you stand on the keyboard? Because I know that's a big deal. I like the keyboard. I hate the trackpad. So I'm kind of in the reverse of everyone. Really? That's yeah. interesting. What, what do you not like mm. about the trackpad? Um, I, I, it's, it's one of those things where I, I can, I never end up registering quite the type of tap or click that I want. Um, if I'm clicking down all the way to sort of trigger the full on force touch sort of vibration, um, it usually works, but if your finger doesn't leave the glass, um, and you go to move and do something else, which is often the case. Um, I often end up sort of dragging something. or I just do a lot of things accidentally. And I sat <laughs> with Jason Snell on Slack once and he walked me through everything he had set up his uh, review version to do. And um, we walked through all the different things I could do to tweak it. And I got it to a point that I actually rather like it. But it's still, you know, whenever I go back to my 15 inch Pro... I always feel so much more at home. Um, I just have no issues with the full mechanical setup. And the keyboard I find to be absolutely fine. I, um, I've i written whole need collections on that in the morning, which is, you know, a few thousand words. 
without even you know hesitating i i have no issue with it whatsoever all right and and so you're not a big ipad user uh but i know you're a big iphone user yeah so i i almost my ipad is i have an ipad mini um i guess it's the three it has retina but it doesn't have touch id and uh it is used almost exclusively for um comic books um and then I use my iPhone. I have an iPhone 6, uh, 64 gig, um, which I use all day, every day, anywhere. Um, and then I have a backup and I get a lot of flack for it that I use in England. And so I don't have a day phone and an iPhone, but I have an American phone and a British phone. Yeah, I was, um, I was about to go there too, Matt. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I, I just, that, that I just absolutely 100% rely on um, all day. And so I'm, I live on that at all times. So you're on offense in both countries. Well, I was going to ask that. Can you explain that a little bit? Because my understanding is it had gotten a lot easier now just to swap out SIMs between carriers if you had an unlocked phone. Why is that not the case? Or what is the advantage if you are spending significant time in other countries for having a dedicated phone? So the main thing for me is that I have a dedicated British phone number. Um, And so... If you have ah. two devices, it registers as two different iMessage iMessage accounts and iMessage numbers. So if someone's texting me on my British number, um, it comes through to my US phone and vice versa. Whereas if I just had one phone and I was swapping in and out the SIMs, that iMessage number would eventually expire for the US one or, or the other way around. Um, and it just gets unnecessarily complicated because so much of your phone relies on you know, what number it's associated with, that if you start confusing it, then lots of little things will start breaking, um, particularly around your contacts. And it just, it becomes way more hassle than it's worth. So because I'm there quite a bit, we're opening an office in London pretty soon. Um, I just have a UK contract. It's a cheap one. I, you know, I don't have any subsidies on the phone. So it's probably 20 something pounds a month, um, which I just pay and I just keep that number. So sitting here at my desk at home, I just, I leave the British phone at home. Um, but it just means that it's always on. And so if anyone texts me, their number is coming through to my U S phone and my Mac and everywhere else. And it just, it just gives me a lot more peace of mind. It's not for everyone for sure. If you're just going traveling or you're traveling to a huge amount of different countries, then it has no value. But for me as someone that sort of divides this time between two very specific countries, um, it can be extremely useful. It seems kind of like an edge case, but something that should be fixable like that. You shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things I, when, when iMessage came around, it was such a blessing because suddenly it was built in free texts. Like when I first moved to the U S I had to use a, a dialing card to be able to call home because I didn't have any credit in the U S so Verizon wouldn't let me have an international calling package. Um, and then, you know, ending up with the, uh, iMessage it like initially just made such a difference to my day-to-day life and then after that um you know I, I haven't really worried too much about it. it it is a bit of a hassle it is a bit of an edge case um it's the same sort of thing it used to be i know federico had this this come up too where um i ended up with two app store accounts and two apple ids one british one and one american one and i used to jump back and forth between them because i'd want certain apps that were only available in the uk app store uh, these days, that's become really ridiculously problematic to try to maintain. Um, but there are certain cases where you need two phone numbers or two Apple IDs, and they don't really account for it. It'd be great if they did, but I'm really not too worried about it. As long as I can sort of get 
phone calls and texts between both, then I'm I'm happy. So now you're in Dallas, but you you've said that you go back to to the UK quite often. Um, th- how does that? How do you manage that technologically while you're running your company? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of it hinges on having the British phone, but these days I just take the MacBook, um, and that's that's really most of it. Like, uh, as long as I have um, phone a phone with me, so I can just do my email and Slack on the go, um, and then a Mac so that I can do more heavy lifting when I get home or when I get to somewhere where I can sit then that's 99% of what I do. I mean, I've set up so many different uh, systems and checks and balances and things of that nature so that I can run anything and everything from my phone just as well as I can run it from my Mac and I can do it from anywhere. Um, You know, I have all the different metrics pipes straight into Slack, any alerts pipe straight through into there as well. Um, Our backend for need, we built custom, is completely mobile responsive, so I can run the whole site just from my phone. Um, so really I've just got it so that regardless of where I am in the world, it's pretty seamless. It doesn't really make too much difference. And Slack honestly has made a massive difference in that, you know, in terms of running a growing team. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's honestly at this point, whether I'm in the UK, you know, San Francisco, wherever, it doesn't really make that much of a difference to my team. I mean, obviously FaceTime has a lot of value for me to actually be walking around, but, um, I'm able to do a huge amount just from my phone. I feel like we're turning the Mac power users into the Slack podcast because almost every person we have come in talks about how Slack has changed their lives. But I, I do think that it really is a game changer and people out there who haven't tried it with a small company or a big company should really be looking into it. I was talking to a friend of mine that works for a certain fruit company and and they desperately want Slack. Um, but the fruit company has a bunch of secrecy policies that prevent it. And, um, and you look, I look at it as agility and an advantage for smaller companies that can do this stuff. Um, Hey, I'd like to do an ad spot and then uh, maybe go back. And I know Katie wants to ask you about some of the stuff you did as you were getting the company off the ground, how you use the technology. Uh, But before we do that, let let me take a minute, talk about our sponsor today. We've got an exclusive sponsor. I'm really happy to have them back with us. And that's our friends over at smile software. Uh, smile makes some great software and, they have a special deal I'm gonna tell you about at the end of the spot, but I wanna talk about PDF Pin. Uh, PDF Pin is Smile's PDF application, and it is the thing I use every day. I mean, I've, I run my law practice with, you know, I deal with PDFs all the time. This is the application I use. It's on my Mac, it's on my iPad and my iPhone because it's multi-platform, everything just works together. The tools are roughly the same in all the places and it's got all the power you need to really get the most out of PDFs. I mean, uh, I know the Mac ships with preview, but there's a lot of things I wanna do that preview can't do. For instance, I want to be able to do optical character recognition. People always send me PDFs of contracts and they're just pictures you know a pdf without ocr is just a picture of the words you can't do anything with it all i have to do is open that up in pdf pen on my mac and it automatically applies optical character recognition so then i can search the document i can highlight certain portions of it i can copy pieces out of it and paste it into a word or a pages document and it does all that for me Uh, another great feature and i just used it the other day was you know when you get a pdf from somebody and you want to like track changes or do something in it um you can turn it into a word document right in pdf pin on your mac so you x press the export button and it'll export the document 
as a Word document. So you get a Word document back. It does a really good job with the formatting, and then you can do all sorts of great stuff with it. And it, it will just amaze the people you're dealing with when they suddenly get a Word document back and they sent you a PDF, which is kind of fun too. Uh, PDF Pen fully supports cloud storage. You know, they've got, you know, Dropbox and iCloud Drive and, you know, whatever you need to, to get the document shared across. And because PDF Pen is also on the I, iPad and the iPhone, you can see the documents there as well. They've got even more advanced features. If you go with the PDF Pen Pro version, for instance, you can add a table of contents to your document or um, you can create fillable forms if you need to create fillable forms. And all of this is very reasonably priced. I mean, one of the things I really like about it and one of the reasons I use it every day is I don't want to pay the exorbitant prices some of the competitors use. PDF Pen is is priced at a, a rate that makes sense, supports a developer, but also you know fits within my budget. Uh, so I want you to head over to Smile Software and, and check it out. And for today's show, we got a special deal. So what you're going to get is 20% um, off all of the software, whether it's PDF Pen Pro or PDF Pen Standard. Um, you just, you know, smile loves podcasts and they want to support it. So they've got this 20% off. So you go into the store, you buy it right there and it's going to be active through October 15th. So as we record the show, you're going to have a, you're going to have over a month to go in and get it. So this is the time to go in and get it. Now, when you fill it out, they're going to ask you where you heard about it. Well, you know what I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them you heard about it from Mac power user. So they've got a little form in there. Make sure you check that off. Even tweet it out, let them know the love, but, um, uh, PDF pen will solve so many problems for you if you deal with pdfs if you deal with them every day or if you deal with them just once in a while this is software that can fit within your budget and solve those problems so go check it out once again smilesoftware.com thank you smile for all of the support and head over to uh, smilesoftware.com to buy it with that 20 percent off deal uh, and remember to tell them you heard about it from us um david i don't think you gave them the coupon code though so they could get their 20% off. Oh, I didn't, didn't I? You know, I was no, so is excited. That a, is that a secret? About, I, I think so, it's a secret. I was so excited talking about OCR, Katie. You know, every time yeah. I talk about OCR, I get way more excited than I should be. Uh, the, the coupon code is MPU, like Mac Power Users. Yeah. What else could MPU stand for? I'd have to think about that. Don't No, don't send us any suggestions. I think, I think it should only stand for Mac Power Users. I think if you look it up in the dictionary, it should say Mac Power Users. All right. So say MPU at checkout to get that discount. Thank you again, Smile. And uh, and Matt, let's talk about how you got all this stuff off the ground. All right. I'm ready. So uh, you've been a Mac user for a long time. Have you always used Macs in your business? I mean, you were able to build this from the ground up. So did you just make the decision? I'm I'm only going to build this with, with what I know. At any time, did you have to compromise with that or just... Because I know, you know, being a lawyer, sometimes we have to use these these PC things and these PC technologies. But how, how did you interface with this? It just because you got to build it, you got to pick? Yeah, I mean, up until just over a year ago, I was still the only employee. Um, and by the time we started adding people, it was just kind of expected that you'd end up using an iPhone and a Mac. I mean, it, it never has even come up as an issue. I think my COO was a Windows user, um, and I think he was just uh, guilted into buying a Mac before we even found out. Um, so we've it's never even really been a question. I, I started using a Mac when I was uh, in university, so I was a little bit later in the game. Um, it was probably around 2007. Um but I've used on consistently since then. I started using an iPhone in 2008 
Um, and there hasn't really been a break in that. And so everyone in the, everyone in the office, everyone in the company, all using Macs, you know, we, we pretty much focus all of our development on making sure it works. The sites work well on Macs. We don't really worry too much about Windows, much to the upset of one particular user who works for Microsoft. Um, but yeah, all Mac, all Apple. Now, so we get so many complaints from people who say, not necessarily people who listen to this podcast, but, you know, Macs just aren't good for business software. You can't do any kind of accounting. You can't um, do any kind of, you know, real world processing or spreadsheets or any any businessy type stuff that you have to do on a Mac. Uh, what do you say to those people? Um, I think they're probably stuck in a world where they have to use a lot of outdated technology and probably haven't tried to do anything uh, relatively modern in a while on a Mac. Um, or their business requires doing things in a relatively antiquated way. I don't entirely know, but for us, it's never once been an issue. Um, I mean, the vast majority of stuff we do isn't even that Mac specific. We do a lot of it online, um, but... Um, you know, I, I think for us, it's it's never even been a question. There's never been any concern. We had a new accounting firm come along and they were really keen for us to get a new Windows PC to use for accounting purposes. And they sort of walked into the office, saw what it looked like, saw what everyone in the office looked like, and then saw that everyone was using a Mac. And I think they all just sort of gave up. And uh, I think they've been pleasantly surprised on the other side of things. Our, um, yeah. And then even in that case, they found a solution, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's never once been a problem. I mean, everything yeah. these days is so agnostic. I mean, we've we've set up a little data layer on uh, between both sites. So we built our own proprietary platform, um, which is great, but it also poses issues sometimes in having translatable and really sort of universal data that you can pipe into a lot of different services and whatever else. Uh, so we have something called Segment, um, which is really phenomenal. Uh, it basically serves as sort of a sort of a sort of a duct tape together API for both need and foremost separately. Um, so it takes all of our proprietary data and translates it um, into universally recognizable data um, for various different services. And so we pump all of our information, whether it's transactions or user data or certain JavaScript events, all these different sorts of things through so many different services and things that if we really wanted to, we could pump it out into all sorts of different languages and mechanisms and mediums and whatever else is relevant. Um, I mean, I just was using a service the other day that is built entirely around pumping your traffic and user data straight into uh, Google Sheets. And it comes out and it's really robust and really interesting and the sort of thing that I could present to investors. Um, so I've never once had to worry about the sort of tools at my disposal. Um Early days, I was really skeptical about spending money on certain things. Like I, we, we kind of needed um, second monitors and things like that, particularly for the sake of design and whatever else. And early days, someone just said to me that, you know, spend whatever you had to spend on the tools necessary to get it done, just so you don't have to think about it anymore. And so I got the maxed out MacBook Pro, got, you know, Thunderbolt displays for people. And uh, we helped everyone out make sure they had the sort of right software and whatever else. And as a result, I mean, maybe we, maybe we were in a fortunate circumstance in that regard, but the ultimate result was that we've never once had to sort of worry about how we do things or the sort of software at our disposal. It's more been a question of other ways we could use those sort of tools a little bit more efficiently, things like that. 
Well, I was going to say this might be a good time to talk about some of the tools that you're specifically using. I know we've we talked quite a bit about Slack for communication within the office, but types of things that you're using for project management and um, for maybe, you know, managing multiple teams and people that are perhaps in different places, um, you know, what kind of tools are you using just to keep yourself on task? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a fairly diverse array of things we're using. I mean, things that uh, live on my phone and um, on my Mac that are just immediate things that play in every day. Um, you know, we just we we run most of our documentation and our spreadsheets and things like that through Google Drive, um, just because it's quick, easy. Uh, we can drop new people in and out. Um, if someone leaves the company or joins the company, it's really easy to get them involved. Um, we have a corporate Dropbox set up so that we can segregate the data between personal and professional for everyone, which makes a huge difference. We just did that relatively recently. Um, we run all of our creative stuff through creative cloud. We also keep a repository of all our brand assets on that. Um, Slack, I know is a really trite one, but, uh, we use Zapier, uh, to, I hope that's how you pronounce it. I have no idea. Um, that's the, um, that's kind of the, if this, then that alternative, correct? Right. So we use that, um, to connect like Braintree, which is our credit card processor to Slack. So if an order over a certain amount goes through, I have two private channels in there that pull in all the data from there. Um, So we basically use Slack as the hub for everything. Zapier translates all the data from all these disparate services. So if someone sets up a new drive document or makes a big edit to something that's really mission critical for everyone, it pipes into Slack. If there's a traffic influx. Go Squared lets us know that real time right now, there's a bunch of people hitting the site. Uh, Braintree will let us know if there's big transactions coming through suddenly. So we know if like a podcast ad just went out or something. Um, we have it set up. So Zendesk, which we use for customer support, pipes in um, new tickets and people can respond in line. Um, we have Intercom set up for live chat on both sites. That all pipes straight into Slack as well so that we can comment on that. What is Intercom? I've never heard of that before. It's sort of a cross between uh, MailChimp, Mandrill, uh, Olark. It's it's, it's sort of a cross between email marketing, um, live chat, and um, sort of intelligent uh, response-related and event-related email. So just a little bit beyond just your basic email marketing, but like... You know, if someone has been on the site for over X amount of minutes and spent less than X amount of dollars, then we can have a certain message go to them either via email or so the next time they get on the site, they get an instant message from one of the people on my team with a promo code or something like that. Um, But it's a really beautiful, um, really seamless and really mobile friendly live chat. Um, I refuse, I I tend to refuse to add new features to the site until I can find a half decent and semi-attractive um, solution. And uh, Intercom was that for live chat. And it's it's really phenomenal. It can be it can be quite expensive if you have a large amount of users, um, but it's paid off in dividends for us. You know, people love it. We, we get messages from people that are just like, what on earth are you guys using for live chat? Because this is amazing. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I opened, I opened it at the beginning of the show and I've actually got a message from Intercom while we've been talking, well, because I have had it open in the background. Everything. They want to know why I'm not, why I'm not, you know, checking things out faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and all this stuff is web-based, right? Yeah, the vast majority of stuff we do um, is web-based. We, there's not too much that relies on one piece or the other, um, which is predominantly why I'm able to work anywhere. Um, 
there's just there's just a huge amount of redundancies um we just we just have we have it set so that you know if someone's out there's someone else that can handle it or the data is immediately accessible for them to do so um so we have like our development team they're in virginia we have one or two of those guys in our slack channel we have um all our photographers and directors and things like that so regardless of what happening what's happening whether it's an intern all the way up to me um we can jump in, get a quick wherewithal as to what's happening. No unnecessary questions. It just serves, and I know that everyone probably says it, and it's super boring, but it really is the hub for everything for us. Everything else just runs on, you know, your standard sort of cloud services. Yeah, it, it really the world has changed. I mean, yeah, I think we were saying platform agnostic earlier. That's a a great term because uh, not only it used to be Windows versus Mac. Or it used to be Windows and sometimes Mac, <laughs> but the um, but now everybody's on these different platforms. They're on iOS devices or an Android, and uh, if you're in business, whether you're dealing with the customers directly or providing a backend service to vendors, people want it to to work on every platform. Well, and I tell you, that's a feature that I look for now too. I mean, we're looking potentially at new content management systems and document management systems at at our office and especially me being the Mac user in the crowd, I have no interest in something that's a piece of software that I'm installing on a, on a PC. I really want something that's, that's cross platform and is going it's going to be web-based because I, I think that's where everything's heading. And it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, it's, I it's, don't really know. Yeah, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's really great if those services have something native, right? So like, um, you know, Slack's quote unquote native app on iOS and Mac is, is it can be sometimes a little iffy, but it's there and it's really quick to jump into. And that's a really understandable thing for a lot of different people um, that, you know, I think everything is web based these days. Um, but I think probably the most elegant and efficient way to reach that medium and to really engage with it in the most you know productive way possible these days I think it has to be through a Mac or through an iOS device and maybe that's controversial but you know at our company we, we couldn't really have it any other way we, we pipe everything and everything through anything and everything through all these different services the vast sort of array of disparate different things for RSS all the way to customer support to live chat and they all have to have some sort of rooted connection that eventually comes down to you know if we're all out and about you know running a pop-up shop um, we can jump into the intercom app and do a quick live chat, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Whereas if it's just pure web, then it's not necessarily the most valuable thing ever. It could be the best service ever. Um, but if it's not immediately accessible, regardless of where you are, um, that's when trouble arises for us. So that is actually what informs the vast majority of our decisions. It's like, it has to be platform agnostic, but it also has to sort of dip it to dip its toes in those sort of platform waters somewhat so that it can just make it that much easier for you to use it. Um, that's really where it's come from for us. Or if we can sort of duct tape together some sort of mechanism through which we can access it through another sort of service we have on our phones. Um, but that's, that's mostly the decision process that we filter everything through is that is it is it something really robust online that everyone can use and wrap their head around but also is it something that someone can download to their iphone and just pick up and start running with and have everything and everything anything and everything they need just from the outset so you're looking for a back end a web back end but local applications where it makes sense 
Right. Uh, yeah, I would to, say. To access that data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, I want to wind the clock back a little bit because, you know, we, we went over it pretty quickly how you went from, you know, blogger guy, you know, to, to CEO guy. And I know that uh, just knowing what little I know of what you were doing during that period, you were busting your tail out there selling this idea. And so I'm guessing you did a lot of interesting things with email and probably presentations and some of the the other technologies you you use to you know convince people to invest in in this dream of yours. And you're a geek, so I want to hear what what did you do to pull that off? Yeah, I mean, early days. I think probably one of the most profound discoveries I had early days was Text Expander. Um, one of the big, big, big projects that came up, you know, between Blogger Mad and CEO Mad is um was actually making partnerships with brands um and that was a huge learning curve for me um and working out how to speak to those guys working out what they didn't want to hear and it wasn't all the sort of stuff i expected you know i went out and got an amazing board for example and i thought that having one of the uh founders of guilt group you know a really prominent e-commerce group would lend so much credibility to what i was trying to do um turns out all these brands hate guilt and so it was a really bad thing. And so I learned all that really quickly. But what I was able to do was just really make that into a really quick process so that I was able to go from having no brands literally less than a month before we launched the site. Like I focused all on the design, building the site and getting a great board and fundraising. Um, and then it was, you know, 30 days before we were going live and it was like, oh man, we don't have any product to sell. And that's almost exclusively what this company does. Um, and so, you know, jumping into text expander and making quick snippets that I still use today, uh, to email a brand, but still make sure it was personal. Um, so, so many people would just make, you know, a template email where they say, hi, I'm Matt, I'm the founder of X and, you know, I love X. So let's partner. Instead, you know, what I had always learned having dealt with PR and everything is that the the worst possible thing you could do is rely on a template because it's so transparent and it's one of the biggest turnoffs for people you could possibly work with. Um, and so much of my work and my automation was focused on giving myself the avenue to still be able to sort of say something personal and have something relevant to say for them. So how did you go about doing that? I mean, like what types of techniques are you using in text expander? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was about, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not pro user by any means, but, um, it was just about creating like half decent, attractive email that was well-written, um, that just had, it would sort of begin with the typical sort of thing, like, um, dear, just sort of a, a big sort of opening field for name and then, you know, hope you're well. And then I'm the founder of need. And then, a blank sort of paragraph space for how I found them, what what drew me to them, what made them relevant. Then a quick automated bit about what need was going to be, who was involved, and why they might find it interesting. And then a concluding paragraph that I drop in about um, how I'd come across them in the first place. And so that would just strip out all of the unnecessary work around rearticulating what need was, um, trying to bring all this sort of stuff together. And so I was able to get through that sort of stuff really quickly. And we ended up before we launched, we went from zero brands to over 150 within a matter of weeks. Um, yeah, so it sounds like it's a very customized template. I mean, you were able to get some of the um, the generic boilerplate out of the way, but yet customize it in such a way that it wasn't just a, hi, I'm Matt, and this is my company type email. 
Yeah, I mean, my, the biggest, yeah, as I was saying, like, I mean, it's just, it's the worst thing you can receive either in the press or as, you know, a business is something that you know has come from a million other people or that, you know, it has a million different font sizes in the email because they've just been cutting and pasting it so many times that just picked up so many different types of formatting. Um, so just being able to write something personal that meant something to these guys. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the fashion industry gets a lot of flack from people but the reality is that it's a bunch of people just like in the indie tech world that are trying to make something that they really believe in and they're trying to sell it um to certain people that they hope will care about it and will tell that story really well um it's it's all the same thing across so many different industries and so being able to write to these people and treat them with some dignity a lot of which was um informed by my experiences being this little sort of indie tech person um being able to write to them and say something personal, but be able to shave off, you know, a lot of valuable time in doing so was massive. Um, you know, I kept Google documents I still do today um, of targets for funding or press or things of that nature. We keep automated lists of everything. I keep all of my different presentations for the company in Keynote. I just keep everything immediately accessible, but as automated and intelligent as I possibly can so that I can just keep moving really quickly. Yeah. And, you know, try not to do things twice. Like the, the idea of putting uh, blank paragraphs in a form email is a really good one. And I, I use the same thing. I, I bet Katie does too, because there is parts of an email that are, are tedious that you'll use repeatedly. But if you can put in a paragraph in there that personalizes at the beginning or in the middle, um, it just gives a completely different feel to the reader. Yeah. One of the, one of the big things I started doing otherwise you know, early days was getting to use, um, Hazel. Uh, that was a big learning curve mm. for me. Um, and it was one of those things uh, famously, uh, when I first tried to use it back when Bonanza was bionic, um, when it was a regular show, um, I tried to set up a script and inadvertently ended up wiping my whole Mac. Um, like I said, I, love that. <laughs> I, oh boy. I set it up to delete like, um, a hierarchy of folders and it and rather than stopping when it hit a certain point it just kept going and deleted everything um and uh and so my computer was literally crashing mid podcast at one point where it was it was deleting itself um which is intensely embarrassing um but you know I, i've tried a lot of different things but i have ultimately got that to the point where for dropbox for example it's really important that we have really clean structuring around all the legal documents that come in and our resale certificates and all the brand different line sheets we have coming in and all these disparate different things. And then for me and also for the company, having it so that any of these images that we have coming in, we, we have a repository of, you know, tens of thousands of photographs at this point for products. Uh, we have different films we've shot, all these different things between both brands. Um, been using Hazel to automate that. So from my end where I'm sort of the master hub for a lot of these folders and things like that, anything that anyone drops in, it'll sync with my Mac and then Hazel will automatically clean it up and make sure everything's filed away properly. So everyone's just sort of able to drop stuff in. And then as soon as I'm back on the network or as soon as my computer downloads it, it just cleans everything up. And if it does anything wrong, it's pretty easily recoverable. But the nice thing there is that um, regardless of what everyone else is doing inside the company, we can have certain naming structures. We can have a really clean and consistent hierarchy of data. Um, and it's really easy to find aberrations and anomalies. And so that way, if someone comes into the company, they need to find something. 
it's crazy easy to find and if they can't find it we have an internal wiki i built on uh, readme.io that um has you know reference points for all this stuff anyway so doing little things with text expander hazel those were probably the earliest nerdiest things that i started doing that not everyone in the company necessarily has visibility to um but they know that that's how it works and that it's a really easy way to get stuff done really fast. We also use shared uh, one password vaults between everyone in the company um, so that we can share around corporate credit cards, things like that. Um, the, I, those are the sort of few little sort of native Mac apps that are completely unrelated to web work, um, but that enable us to do a lot more or a lot more, you know, have a little bit of cleanliness at the very least. I still think that the biggest advantage of the Mac is the third-party developers. I mean, that stuff just doesn't exist on other platforms. And it sounds like you're stepping right up the chain there. You, ma'am, you start the automation train with Text Expander, then you move up to Hazel. Uh, curious to see if you've gotten into or you are thinking about getting into uh, Keyboard Maestro yet, because you're you're heading up that way. Yeah, no, I I looked into it early days when I was sort of trying to shop around and work out because I, when I wanted to sort of use Text Expander, I didn't know at the time that I wanted to use Text Expander. I knew that I wanted to use something, um, and I assumed that Keyboard Maestro would be my solution, um, and I assumed wrong. And I tried to use it at first, and I was well out of my depth. And so I haven't gone back to that one yet, but maybe I will soon. You know, one thing I was thinking, your company's growing. I mean, you were just telling us before you got here how you're increasing your employees. At some point, you're going to run into a problem having a shared Dropbox account for groups of employees. Um, you know, somebody's going to accidentally, you know, delete one of those folders. Yeah, well, we just started using it. So that was the problem. So we, we as I say, the company just over a year ago was just me. Um, as of today, we're like 14 people. Um, and... So we'll have people come in and they won't realize that the stuff is shared or they won't fully appreciate the gravity of deleting a folder called like legal. Um, and it's not a problem. Don't <laughs> sorry. Worry about I, sorry. I didn't mean to laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause uh, you know, all of our, we're, we're moving to a new law firm right now and everyone is throwing around uh, my new favorite legal term, which is setting up a company vault. Um, and all this sort of stuff, uh, but we haven't done it yet. So everything just lives in Dropbox or with our sort of pre-existing law firm in a very sort of ad hoc way. Um, so it was all operating out of everyone's different personal accounts and stuff kept going missing. And we could recover that, but it was super messy. And certain things would just be named really badly or they'd be nested within random folders. And it got beyond the point of just being able to clean it up. So we set up the corporate thing and it's freed up so much space on my Mac both of them um and it's it's been one of the best things ever just because there's protective measures we can see exactly who's making edits when and where we can create little sort of specific permissions around certain folders it's just it gives us a lot more granular control over everything whilst also meaning that we can have a really firm remit around what everyone does there um so we have a sort of a much safer sandbox as opposed to what used to be a very sort of uh, ridiculous one where things would go missing it's it's funny because a few years ago, Dropbox was the consumer solution to cloud syncing and and Box. I think it was .net originally, but now it's .com. 
was the solution for what you're talking about, you know, more managed structure and uh, audit trails of what happens to files. And there's a very clear dividing line. But over the last couple of years, Box has kind of pushed itself down into the consumer space and Dropbox is pushing itself up into the business accounts. So um, the good news for us consumers is now we've got like options and these guys are going to be duking it out for our business. Well, I want to take a quick break here uh, and talk about one more time our exclusive sponsor, although we've been talking about them a bit already. Um, but Matt, when we come back, be thinking, I do want to talk to you a little bit about how you personally manage um, to get some of your your things done, how you manage your email, how you manage your tasks, because I know you mentioned that you live in email these days, and that's something that's a little bit overwhelming for most of us. So uh, we'll talk about that after the break. But before we do, I do want to take a minute and thank Smile once again. And I want to talk a little bit about Text Expander, although we have talked about that a little bit already in this podcast. But for those of you who are hearing Matt talk about Text Expander and maybe aren't quite sure what that is and, and why it's so great, uh, Text Expander is an amazing utility for your Mac that will allow you to type just a few snippets of text, and those snippets of text will expand into much longer blocks of text. Uh, you can use it for doing things like um, inserting standard greetings into emails or into correspondence. Uh, you can use it for signatures. You can use it um, for just about anything that you use that's text-based. So uh, if you find yourself that's commonly typing the same word or phrase or paragraph or even entire letters or documents over and over and over again, you can save those items into Text Expander, and so that you never have to retype them again and that you can, Text Expander will automatically type those documents out for you. Uh, all you have to do is trigger that with just a few keystrokes. And so you can save all kinds of, uh, of keystrokes and lots of hand pain uh, by using Text Expander. You, I one of my big uses of Text Expander is I actually use it to correct a lot of typos. You know, we all have these words that we we constantly our fingers are, are tripping over, or maybe just words that we can't quite spell. Um, I've set up a huge Text Expander library, one that I've downloaded from them, and one that I've created myself of just autocorrect snippets for things that I'm constantly mistyping. That anytime Text Expander sees that I've mistyped a word or a phrase it will go in and, and automatically correct that for me. And you heard Matt talk a little bit about the fill-in snippets. Uh, text Expander has the uh, advanced capability to create fields of text that you can then fill in. So you can start an email, have a block of text that, that you fill in, um, then have another block of text that's pre-formatted for you, um, then maybe have something inserted from your clipboard, um, then maybe have another block of text that's pre-filled, um, then maybe even have a checkbox where you can pick from a couple of options in a drop-down menu. Uh, and then maybe at the end, have your cursor inserted at the end so that you can, you know, finish off and sign the email. All that can be had uh, through the advanced uh, fill-in snippets available through Text Expander. The possibilities are endless. And if you really want to up your game on your Mac, Text Expander really is the first point uh, into automating your Mac. You can do all kinds of things with HTML and CSS using symbols, a text expander is the gateway tool. And all of these things that you create using text expander on your Mac uh, will automatically sync across all of your devices. You can sync either via um, uh, iCloud or via Dropbox. And they'll not only sync across all of your Macs, but they also have a companion iOS device as well that's got an amazing text expander keyboard, which means that you can use text expander on iOS, not only in the apps that developers have worked with to enable text expander support, but really anywhere in iOS. Uh, so text expander for Mac and 
uh, for Mac is also included in the Smile Cell. They unfortunately can't uh, do it with the iOS version, but you can get up to 20% off uh, text expander if you buy direct from Smile. So you can go to smilesoftware.com slash MPU, and you can save 20% off of Text Expander or PDF Pen if you prefer to pick up a copy of PDF Pen that you heard David talk about earlier uh, by using the coupon code MPU at checkout. And again, that's going to be good uh, directly through October 15th. So you can save 20% on PDF Pen, uh, 20% on anything from the Smile Software Store. Uh, so go check it out over at smilesoftware.com slash MPU uh, and make sure you let them know that you heard about them on Mac Power Users. Okay. Um, so, uh, so we were talking earlier about how you're using these devices to run your, your whole company. And, and Katie had a good question. Um, how are you dealing with the influx of email you get, uh, you know, in charge when you're the guy in charge? Um, yeah, not well. Um, mostly just sort of feel position and crying most of the time. Um, but when I am using something, it's uh, it's mostly mailbox, uh, particularly when I'm on the go. I struggle a little bit with their Mac app, but that's typically how I choose to deal with the vast majority of it. I know that that can be kind of controversial and it's kind of a placebo, um, but I use it just because it, my inbox really is a task list for me and a lot of it will be really superfluous and stuff. So I'll, I'll typically move most uh, non consequential or inconsequential email to the weekend uh, where I can just deal with it on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Um, but anything else, I just move around within the week or within my day, and that has worked out phenomenally well so far. Yeah, I used to make fun of email deferment. I was, um, I thought it was cheating, you know, Just I just thought it was a joke. You know, why are you going to spend your time pushing, you know, just pushing the paperclip around the table rather than just picking up and putting it away? But um, I started using it a couple of years ago and I'm with you. It it absolutely works and it, it helps you kind of keep track of things. You can you, uh, to me that the big difference is there's certain types of email that's going to take work later where it deserves the full treatment. You know, it deserves a task list or a saving a file to your computer or, you know, something that, you know, it's going to be a big deal to respond to, but so much of it doesn't require all that overhead. It just needs a little time. Yeah. I mean, I have to, um, send out monthly updates to our investors. Um, and you know, that will be a long email. There'll be a lot of data. There'll be a lot of writing about plans and how things have shaken out and what worked, what didn't work, whatever else. And that will bring back a huge amount of lengthy replies that require a lot. And like today we're authorizing a new round and I have to send out a uh, first offer. I have to send a resolution to a merger we did earlier this year, all that sort of stuff that will be intensive amounts of work. And then I also, at the same time, I'm getting emails from brands that are pitching us or that want to work out when we're paying them. And we're sort of managing all these new marketing avenues and all these different sort of topics. And if it was all just sitting in my inbox, it would be overwhelming. It would be email from super powerful investors next to, you know, a giant invoice next to all these other things. And they don't need to all happen at the same time. So with most of our invoices for product, um, most of them are on net 30 terms. So I just push them out for three or four weeks and we just get to it right when we have to get to it. And so anything that's in my inbox is just active and it has to go and it has to happen and we get through it. Um, but dealing with all these different people, I mean, it, it gives me anxiety if I open it and I see, you know, the names of some of our investors just sitting there, just weighing for me and they're not weighing and they're not concerned, 
but for me just seeing that sort of stuff there so it's, it's very much a placebo but um i feel a lot more organized in my mind when i'm doing it like that so typically what i do is when i'm out and about um i'll swipe my way through my inbox with mailbox and i'll do that in the evenings too um and then i often use airmail or um the gmail web interface um just because i can just quickly get through stuff with either of those um mailbox uh, for mac is getting a little bit better but it's not quite there yet so mostly i'll do all the defer deferment and all that sort of stuff on my phone um or my ipad actually and then i'll actually do the email on my mac so you guys are using gmail as a back end yeah yeah. Now I'm curious because Gmail has a service where it auto sorts an inbox for you if you want it to, um, which is a little bit different from the kind of stuff you're doing with deferred email. Um, what have you tried those tools and how do you feel about that? Yeah. So I really don't respond well to like the different types of segregated inboxes and things like that, where they just try and present the same data differently. Um, we tried out using inbox by Google, which is just mailbox all over again. Um, but the UI isn't quite as intuitive. Um, what I like about mailbox is that it's just vanilla, straightforward. Here's a list of your email as it's come in chronologically for the most part, just deal with it as it happens. Um, and I just move it around. It's nice and easy. I get it on my Mac. It reappears at 9am or 10am or whenever it reappears. And it's just linear and straightforward and it's not overcomplicated. Um, I'm sure I can set up all these different sort of rules and different ideas and different lists and whatever else where I can push email from investors to go under a certain tag and whatever else. And I'm sure that would be useful for me at some point. But ultimately I have, you know, we have two different brands, but it's one company. And I have just one goal as the CEO, the founder, whatever you want to call me every day and that's just to sort of stay on top of all these different things and the more i try and overcomplicate and overthink it uh the less i'm actually sort of doing my job and just contending with it so a lot of what i'm actually doing with my phone and all these different tools and services is just coming up with a way for me to do a a very straightforward thing in a slightly more efficient manner in the way that will induce the least amount of anxiety in me (laughs) which sounds bad but it's true and you know no, and that kind of gets around to a point I wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show is that the the fact that you are a smart guy and that you're able to get like things like Text Expander and Hazel working to to automate a lot of the stuff that's happening at your company is the benefit of being a geek. But I think there's also a potential detriment to it, and that is you can overthink procedures and techniques and and systems to the effect that you're not answering those emails from your investors and not, you know, dealing with the vendor relationships because you're so busy nerding everything up. Um, have you found that in any way? Have you experienced that in any way as the company has grown? Yeah. I mean, the shift of going from a small team to a big team or bigger team relatively, um, has been substantial. Um, it has a big psychological impact. Um, one of the big things is, you know, that I have a lot of people I'm accountable to. Uh, so the more I try to cheat email to get it out of my way and out of my life, um, inadvertently, that's just creating more and more barriers between the people that I employ who really need to get a hold of me from doing so. And so, like, they can get a hold of me via Slack, but, you know, if they need me to provide a list of things for them, you know, it's best for them to email that to me because my email is kind of like a to-do list. And so 
early days, you know, them coming to me and saying like, here's how I do things. And my natural inclination was to be like, there's a better way of doing that. Um, which is 90% of what it is to be an entrepreneur. I mean, you're just an opinionated person that feels like there's a better way of doing things. Um, but in, uh, in, in running the company, there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, leeway you have to give people to do things in the way that makes the most sense for them. So if you notice, and if you sort of listen back to everything I've been talking about, most of what we do is just purely around organization and keeping everything clean and readable. And just so that you could be on your first day on the job and you could immediately understand where everything is and how everything is organized. Um, and that's kind of how I try to structure all my own personal stuff too. So that, um, it's just, it's just, I could, I could walk away from it for six months and I could come back and I would know exactly where to start. Everything would be so easy to do. And it's just not overthought. And, you know, my main problem with this sort of this sort of sub industry that's been built around productivity is that the, the more complicated you get, the more you'll be afraid of things like, you know, software updates, uh, because it might break, you know, something that's relatively brittle in this sort of rigid structure you've built around your file system. Um, for me, I needed to be so flexible that, you know, regardless of what operating system I'm on, regardless of what sort of device I'm on, that everything is just right there, right, very easy, that if, you know, if I'm abroad and all I have to access is a Windows PC running Windows XP in an internet cafe, that I could still jump on there and see all the layers images from my layers shoot, you know, regardless. You know, I just I just try not to overthink everything. I want to make it easy for everyone. But the very moment when I start trying to inflict an opinion about everything is the very moment when it gets too complicated and the very moment when no one can actually get their job done. Um, so I, I often try to have to get out of my own way on some of that stuff. Um, you know, I'll, I'll frequently have days where I get caught up and I start redesigning the site or something. And I'll just have to stop and remind myself that it's not just me anymore that a lot of people rely on this, that need used to be me. Uh, now it's a it's a larger group of people, including the users. And the more I try to sort of come up with different ways of doing things that make sense for me, um, the less need is going to be relevant for a huge chunk of people. So, I mean, I just had to give myself the sort of uh, remit to sort of, or I had to sort of reduce my remit somewhat to sort of say, like, you shape how things are done um, and what gets done, but you don't shape exactly how people go about doing those things in the first place. I, I even think that the, the idea of saying, I want this to work on any platform. I want to, if something breaks, I want to be able to go into any computer store and buy any device and be able to continue. I think that can become a slippery slope too. I mean, something I've grown to appreciate over the years is there's certain work that's just better on a Mac or better on an iOS device, or maybe for somebody out there better on a Dell God help them. Um, but the, uh, but you know, and sometimes that's okay too. If you know, it, it's not worth re-engineering your whole system just to, to take that out of the equation, I guess would be the point. Yeah. You know, you bring up an, an interesting point and it was kind of something I wanted to get into, but this may be a good time to do it now. Being the CEO and the founder of a company that has certain responsibilities. You have certain things that you have to do there. But you also are a techie and you're also a nerd, and I'm sure you want to have your hands in those pots as well. How do you let go of some of that desire to 
be the tech person and and have your hands in those things, but understanding that, you know, that's probably not my job. That's not the best use of my time. And and here's an example. You know, my my new firm, they're they're in the process of of doing a website and designing some new promotional materials. And, you know, as kind of the geeky person who gosh, I, I can do a website and I can do this stuff. And, you know, I could actually maybe probably do it better than the person that they've, they're talking to and they're consulting with to do this. But, you know, that's not my job. My, my job is, is to be the lawyer, um, not to do these types of things. But yet sometimes that's hard to let go of for, for us geeks. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, one big chunk of wisdom that was imparted early days was um, really underlining and embossing the value of time. Uh, particularly around me. Um, Early days when the company was just me, I had all sorts of freedom to just jump in and do all these different bits because I had to. Um, These days, um, you know, when you're building a company, one of the most important things that you have to go through, one of the most important processes is you have to become really abundantly and uncomfortably aware of your own shortcomings. Um, You have to know exactly what you're bad at and you have to try and hire people that are so much better than you at those things. So um, I'm the first to admit that I'm not the best at running a team. Um, I can set the creative direction. I can raise the funds. I can get people excited about what we're doing. But when it comes to the day-to-day of having a team, I'm not the best at it. And so I've hired um, really amazing operational people that sort of slot into those bits. And so between sort of becoming increasingly aware of, you know, what my time amounts to and what I should be focusing on and how that, you know, drives value for people, um, not in a monetary sense, but just like how me spending time doing something makes someone else's life a little bit easier later on, um, whether that's raising money or it's working with our lawyers or our accountants, whatever it may be, you know, that is where my value is in the company. It's, it's, it's sitting about six months further ahead from everyone else in the company and making sure everything works. The The moment when I start sort of focusing on the here and now is the moment when I start undercutting people that are way smarter than me and way more aware of what's going on right now. So it's not an easy thing and it's not really um, a really clear thing to articulate to people in terms of something they have to learn. It's really kind of this kinetic thing you come across at some point when you realize oh, hey, I should have nothing to do with this anymore. And it's not from an arrogant place and it's not because I don't have the time. It's because there's smarter people to do it than me and I'm just going to get in the way. And um, that that's not easy. I mean, we have people that are going through that right now. Um, you know, on the design side, we have an amazing designer and she does all of our clothing design. She's done a huge amount of our branding design. Um, she's one of the most ridiculously talented people I've ever met. Um, but she's sort of going through this process of trying to sort of step away from every design decision that goes on because she has to, because her time is more valuable spent elsewhere. And it's the same when it comes down to like wanting to make sure our folder structuring is just right and making sure everyone writes a good email and making sure that every tweet is great. You just ultimately have to remove yourselves from all the granularities and ongoing sort of mechanisms of those decisions. Cause otherwise you end up in paralysis and the crux of building a company is momentum. Um, if you don't have momentum, then you don't have anything. And so my job is just trying to make sure that momentum is there and that I stay out of the way as much as possible. But when I'm needed or I have to be in the way that I'm there. And if I overthink that, then it's sort of tantamount to uh, putting us in a bad place. So it's it's not so much a lesson as, as so much as it is 
a clear necessity almost, but it's not hard. It's not easy even. And at the same time, you still have to be involved and you still have to be, you have to be in there with your hands in some of the tweets and you have to be in there with the way some of the design and little nuances with the website or you're not doing your job. So it's, boy, it's just a constant balance for you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's an ongoing learning curve. You know, we, we just had a team meeting today and, you know, everyone's making these, all these different things. And ultimately what it comes down to is these days, and this is the reason why I have good operational people is that they keep everyone on track in terms of what they're doing design-wise or what they're doing product-wise or what they're doing development-wise. They bring those ideas to me when they're at a relatively advanced stage so that I can do what I do well and sort of say, All right, here's you know, 10 no's, one yes, and a few maybes, and a few ideas as to what we can do about these things. And so I'm just the final decision in that process. And trying to create those layers, you know, I'm all about building a flat structure. And that's kind of the whole thing that everyone wants to do in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and all these different startups. Um, But ultimately, some hierarchy does actually make a huge amount of difference in terms of actually getting things done. And so for me going through this whole learning curve of trying to keep myself one or two steps removed from every day-to-day thing, but then also being able to still be there so that I can sort of jump in and do live chat sometimes. It's a delicate balance. I'm still learning my way through it. And I'm the first to admit that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, but um, but it, it's at least, at the very least, it's kind of a fun thing to try and think through. So, so Matt, what are some of the, the little apps out there? Let's just take off the CEO hat for a minute and you know, you're still a geek and you're still doing a lot of work on your Mac and your iPhone and sometimes your iPad. Um, what are some of the little apps that you use that don't get much um, bandwidth out in the world, but, but make a difference for you? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if I use too many little ones. I live and breathe, uh, with Fantastical and Tweetbot and, reader all the sort of standard ones i i was trying desperately to use omnifocus for a long time and i still do from time to time but i've actually hit a bit of a groove and i'm using things pretty consistently at the moment which is the most consistent i've ever been with a a to-do list app um you know i live in one password i've done some great stuff with uh, day one i'm a big fan um i try to use evernote from time to time but struggle um ember for mac by real mac um, that's been a massive one for me because, um, a lot of what I like to do is keep a visual record of, uh, things that have been meaningful for me. Um, so I, I keep screenshots and take, you know, really high res in-depth shots of every new need collection that goes out, for example, so that I always have a visual record of that stuff. And it's really useful if I need, ever need to build an investor pitch deck. Um, but I also just being able to like you know, jump in there and see a TechCrunch headline about us. Whatever it is, you know, it's the visual value from it. Yeah, I bet a lot of our listeners have ever heard of Ember. Explain a little bit. It's, it's so Ember's kind of like a, a private Pinterest board. Um, so um, Pinterest, you know, is really great um, if you want to sort of remember a product that you were feeling aspirational about buying. Um, and um, Ember lets you do that kind of personally, privately on your Mac. Um, so if, for example, you want to save an article about you or you find a funny image or whatever it is, it just has a Chrome and or Safari extension that you can just 
uh, pipe that image into a private database that syncs with Dropbox. So um, on both my Macs, I'm always, you know, logging images, different brands, different all this sort of stuff. You know, sometimes I could pump that sort of thing into Pinterest or whatever else, but, you know, it's not always suitable to be pumping out, you know, information about products that you might think you want to develop for the site might be sensitive or it's just not the sort of thing that the world really needs to keep seeing every screenshot of the need site. So it's a great little sort of personal repository to keep a hold of everything that's really meaningful um, or not even necessarily meaningful, but just useful. Um, that one's been really massive for me. Yeah, I'm a fan of Ember as well. I, I never really got into Pinterest. I'm not sure why, but I do like the idea of, of saving things privately. And maybe this is yeah. one of the reasons, like, this is something Katie probably would use Evernote for. It's exactly what I'd use Evernote for, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I it's like how, um, you know, Instapaper, for me, uh, feels more geared towards articles, whereas Pocket always felt more geared towards multimedia. Um and I, you know, I use Instapaper personally, but if I was the sort of person that was trying to keep track of different, um, film and video and images and whatever else, I'd probably pump it all straight into pocket. Um, that's not what I use it for. Um, so I don't really use it, but that's kind of a lot of what drives Ember for me is that it's just a purely visual, uh, repository for me. It serves a very specific purpose. It allows me to archive you know, full screenshots of full sites as well as just basic images. And I'm able to keep it tagged and well organized and it syncs with Dropbox. It's just nice and easy. It's really uncomplicated. Um, yeah, no, I, I use it all the time. Um, it, that one's a big one for me, actually. You, I, I use also, I, oh, sorry. You, you also mentioned that you use day one in a unique way. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say unique. It's just for me, um, one of the earliest pieces of advice that I had um, was that I should really try to remember some of the different experiences that have gone into building this company, um, that it would be really valuable for me later on. And so I try to keep track, and I do it very inconsistently, of the really dark moments. Um, and I've gotten myself into this process now that, you know, whenever I think everything's about to fall apart... Um, rather than just sort of sitting and feeling powerless and really confused and upset about it, um, I'll go into day one and I'll write out the exact problem that we're facing and I'll usually find myself articulating the problem. So it's not a technical sort of productivity related thing, but it's a nice little personal place where I can um, hash through the biggest problems facing me. Um, and then whenever I'm facing something similar, I can look back. Yeah, you're talking it through with yourself. Right, exactly. I read an article recently, and it was some university where there was a an instructor in the computer science department, and he told all students he had like a teddy bear outside his office. Have you guys read this story? No. The idea on the show, I thought he did on the blog, but maybe he was on the show. He had a teddy bear, and so every time you would go to him with a question, you would first have to explain the question to the teddy bear before you went in to see him. And he said, like, you know, a large percentage of the students solved the problem when they explained it to the teddy bear. <laughs> and um, I, I've been using that technique in my own life. It, it actually works. Yeah, I guess day one's my teddy bear then. There you go. <laughs> I was going to ask you, David, if you made your clients talk to a teddy bear before they called. No, you. that's okay. <laughs> just your, just, just you. No, I, I that that one's just for me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> might might be worth exploring with a few of my clients, though. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Matt, I, I am just constantly surprised at the many things that you've done and how you've pulled all this together. I mean, you're, you're definitely, you know, one of the, uh, the heroes of all of us, us geeks, the way you've, you've done so much. And, um, I, we expect much, many more big things from you in the future. So I, I can't wait to hear how it all goes. Um, and, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, you want to tell us everybody where they can find you? Uh, best thing to do is just to follow me on Twitter. It's Matt Alexander without the ER because I was too slow. So it's just, uh, Matt Alexander. Um, and, um, you'll find everything else from there. I, I tweet annoyingly profusely about my company. So be prepared for that. Makes sense. You're the, you're the, you're the big guy. You got to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's just like being proud of a child. Um, yeah. And you always swear up and down you're not going to be the sort of person that has the sticker on your car about them being on the honor roll or whatever. But I'm that person about my little company or two. Um, and um, that's okay, I think. Yeah, I think people understand. Or they can just mute that URL. So it works. Well, I like what you do because, you know, a lot of us in this community are very discriminating about, you know, how things are done, how software UIs look. And this is a this clothing and the the stuff you sell on your websites, you can tell, has the same degree of finicky uh, uh, overseer. <laughs> and that's uh, that's much appreciated. I'm a, I'm a customer. Anyway, everybody, um, go check out Matt at Need and also the um, I forget what's the name of the second one. There's there's foremost yeah for yeah and it's it's a neededition.com and foremostedition.com support mac o, matt over there and um uh if you want to find us katie where do you look well you can find links to everything that we've talked about including all of matt's projects in our show notes over at relay.fm slash mpu slash 276 for this episode uh you can also follow us on twitter the show is mac power users i'm katie floyd and david is max sparky 276 we're sneaking up on 300 we're working our way there you didn't think we'd get past 10 what happened well you know <laughs> you just you talk a lot yeah well there you go <laughs> thanks again matt uh we'll talk to you again soon and everybody go check out matt's uh, products and we'll see you all next week